1: more to this uh, Bible study. We are tonight in chapter 33, of the book of Genesis. Before we start this chapter, it's a fairly short chapter, so tonight it uh, will be a shorter study. There are a number of things I wanted to share with you. Um, uh, First of all, I wanted to let you know that uh, the website that is associated with this Bible study is now up again. And it is at uh, Corbono, which is spelled Q-O-R, and the word Bono, B-O-N-O, corbono.com. If you go to this website, you will see that uh, there are a number of talks many of you may not have listened to, particularly the library called the Catholic Foundation Library, I do recommend that you subscribe to this library. It will give you a foundation and a good understanding of Scripture according to the mind of the Church. It covers a broad swath of Scripture, starting with how do we read Scripture, the four senses, the covenant, its meaning, its importance. Walking you through some of the symbols that is used in Scripture on a continual basis. The liturgy of the temple which is so important and informs so much of our own liturgy. It will talk to you about some of the prophets. It will walk you through the angels, their importance. And it will talk about some aspects of the gospel which are a little bit uh, harder to deal with, particularly the aspects of the gospel deal with the apocalypse. It's a pretty good foundation to uh, go through. Take a look at it. Um, do encourage you also to log in, leave some comments if you like this uh, s, uh, this Bible study. That would be very appreciated. So, uh, as I said, it is up, and it's at Corbono, dot com. A couple other things I wanted to share with you. If you're looking for a good read, I strongly recommend this uh, book. It's published by Tan, called The 33 Doctors of the Church, and it is a summary of the lives of 33 saints who are considered the doctors of the Church, all the way through Saint Therese of Lisieux, the latest. Uh, it is not. This is not a tome a tome in theology, so it is not a study where you have to plow through theological concepts. It is written in a very readable style. The author, uh, who is a priest, Father Christopher Rengers. Obviously, has a lot of devotion to those saints, and it comes through. It, he really focuses on their lives, their difficulties, the challenges they are faced, what happened during their times, what were they facing, and what were they really known for. Very good read, and uh, I might add, you might make some new friends. You might discover some saints here that will touch you really deeply. Uh, for instance, uh, I knew already about St. John Chrysostom, who's a doctor of the church, and known as um, uh, Mouth of Gold because of his sermons. But I have not read his life. And once I read his life, it really touched me very, very deeply. So here's an example of a really good book. If you want to read it either to your children or read it, uh, keep it on your bedside. Most of the biographies don't extend past 15 pages. Uh, So a very, very good uh, read that I recommend. And the other one I wanted to share with you is this little book. Oddly, it is published in Manila, the Philippines. I got it, though, through Amazon. And it's The Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas. Very, as you can see, very small book. Uh, think of this as uh, if, if St. Thomas were living today, he'd probably have a website and he'd call this the Frequently Asked Questions. About the faith, and I wanted to share with you a small, little portion to show you number one the clarity, the limpidity of Saint Thomas's mind, and number two uh, attract your attention to the creed, which is something we don't spend much time thinking about. And here he is talking about the creed. He's going through the creed actually step by step. Most of the paragraphs in this book don't exceed more than two and a half pages. Very short. And um, so, the third article, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We say this in the creed all the time. But we don't really stop to think, why did the fathers at the um, Council of Nicaea put these words in it? Because, you know, this creed is called the Nicene Creed. We have the Apostles' Creed, the shorter version. And this is the Nicene Creed. After the Council of Nicaea. Why is it that at that Council they decided to write a creed? And why were these words put in the creed? So let me read to you a little bit from this book. You might find this interesting. I am going to read it from a section titled, Errors Relating to, to the Third Article, which is, Who Was Conceived by the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary. On this point... There arose many errors, and the Holy Fathers at the Council of Nicaea added in that other creed a number of things which suppress all these errors. In that other creed, meaning the Nicene Creed, which is what we are... uh, So, I'm uh, I'm sorry, what I quoted from is really the Apostles' Creed, and he's not going to talk about what was added in the Nicene Creed. My apologies. So, again, what I quoted for you is from the Apostles' Creed, And now St. Thomas is going to say why in the Nicene Creed they added a whole bunch of things. And I will explain to you why it's longer and why we actually say it. Origen said that Christ was born and came into the world to save even the devils. The interesting thing about Origen is that he is one of the early Christian writers who is copiously quoted by the Fathers, and some of the things he said, made it also in many, many Catholic writings we use all the time. But towards the end of his life, he deviated. He didn't stay true to the faith. And here's one error that he made. Um, he said that, um, Christ said, Origen said that Christ was born and came into the world to save even the devils. And therefore, at the end of the world, all the demons will be saved. But this is contrary to Holy Scripture. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and, the angel, and his angels. Consequently, to remove this error, they, meaning the fathers of the Council of Nicaea, added in the Creed, who for us men, not for the devils, and for our salvation came down from heaven. In this, the love of God for us is made more apparent. Fortinus would have Christ born of the Blessed Virgin, but added that he was a mere man who, by good life in doing the will of God, merited to become the Son of God, even as other holy men. So we have a variation of this these days, where we have people telling you Jesus actually went to India and learned from the sages over there and came back. He's just a good man. You know, many many variations on the concept of Jesus being just a good man. Nothing new existed back then; was refuted back then. And it's in the creed. This too is denied by this saying of John. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now if Christ were not in heaven, he would not have descended from heaven. And were he a mere man, he would not have been in heaven. Hence it is said in the Nicene Creed, he came down from heaven. So it's an assertion of the divinity of Christ when we say he came down from heaven. He's not a mere man. Manichaeus, however, said that Christ was always the Son of God, and he descended from heaven, but he was not actually, but only in appearance, clothed in true flesh. So in this case, Manichaeus said, no, oh, he came down from heaven, he is the Son of God, but he wasn't really a man. He appeared like a man. And so St. Augustine spent a good part of his life battling the Manichaeans. Right? So where was I? But this is false, because it is not worthy of the teacher of truth to have anything to do with what is false. And just as he showed his physical body, so it was really his. Handle and see, for his spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me to have. To remove this error, therefore, they added, and he was incarnate. Ebion, who was a Jew, said that Christ was born of the Blessed Virgin in the ordinary human way. But this is false. For the angel said to Mary, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy fathers, to destroy this error added by the Holy Spirit. Valentinus believed that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but would have the Holy Spirit deposit a heavenly body in the Blessed Virgin. So Valentinus agreed that he was born by the Holy Spirit, but the action of the Holy Spirit deposited a uh, full body in the Blessed Virgin, meaning there is nothing of her in Christ. So that the, she, contrib, she contributed nothing to Christ's birth except to furnish a place for Him. Thus, he, he said, his, this body appeared by means of the Blessed Virgin as though she were a channel. And this is a, this is a heresy that is very much alive in our own time. You talk to many uh, Protestants that will tell you of Our Lady what well, she was just a channel, just a vessel. That's the word they use. Okay? And if you really probe deeper, you will see that they have a real hard time of speaking of Mary as the mother of God. They actually never use that title with her. They'll never call her Theotokos. They're very, very leery of that language and they will never use it with her. She's just a vessel. This is We're talking, all these heresies, we're talking 3rd century. right? 3rd to, 2nd to 3rd century, 300-400. Very early on. Thus he said, that body appeared by means of the Blessed Virgin as though she were a channel. This is a great error, for the angel said, And therefore also the holy which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And the apostle adds, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his Son made of woman. And so the reason why St. Paul speaks in this language is to assert the divinity. God sent his Son. And the humanity made of woman, born of woman, of Jesus Christ. Right? Hence the creed says, born of the Virgin Mary. Arius and Apollinarius held that although Christ was the Word of God and was born of the Virgin Mary, nevertheless he did not have a soul, but in place of the soul was his divinity. So they agreed that he had a body, that he was he came not from heaven, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. But he had no soul. Only had his divinity. By the way, when Arius, who was a bishop, came forth and suggested his theory, uh, within about 40 years, span, 90% of all Catholic bishops were Arian. To such an extre- extreme that St. Jerome wrote and said, the world groans under Arianism. 90% of the bishops were Arian, were in error. And it took some of those fathers, I mentioned in this other book, the 33 doctors of the church, St. Cyril, St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, many of these saints to reverse the tide. And that should teach you a couple of things. Number one, we are not living in, from from a doctrinal point of view, we're not living in the worst times, doctrinally. Morally, it's a different issue. And number two, Nobody can speak in the name of the church in as, as far as matters of teaching, right? What is right, what is true, other than the Pope, the, magisteri- the magisterium, the normal, the, the ordinary magisterium of the church, or a council, and that's it. Those are the only three sources of authority we have for teachings. Right? The, 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 the bishop has authority as far as Pastoral matters are concerned. So, for instance, in San Diego, you might have the Latin bishop permit parents to, say, go to Mexico and have their children uh, confirmed before the age of 15 or 16. Some parents really want their children confirmed earlier. He can give that authority, or he may not give it. That's his authority. That's his power. He has power to baptism. All that comes to us from the bishop. All the sacraments that we uh, have access to are really linked to the bishop. So it's a very important, important power, but not power of defining truth. Okay. This is contrary to scripture, for Christ says, Now is my soul troubled. Then again, my soul is sorrowful, even unto death. For this reason the fathers added, and was made man. Now man is made up of body and soul. Christ had all that a true man has save sin. All the above mentioned errors and all others that can be offered and are destroyed by this, that he was made man. The error of Eutychus particularly is destroyed by it. He held that by a comic of the divine nature of Christ with the human, he was neither purely divine nor purely human. This is not true, because by it Christ would not be a man, and so it is said, he was made man. This destroys also the error of Nestorius who said that the Son of God only by an indwelling was united to man. This too is false because by this Christ would not be man but only in a man. And that he became man is clear from these words. He was in habit found as man. But now you seek to kill me a man who has spoken the truth to you which I have heard of God. So in the creed you have a true, profound teaching about the nature of Jesus Christ, for which some saints had to spill their blood. And we have received that creed. And for most of us, we just recite it, like it's the alphabet: A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So it's worth to take. Your, I mean, you can see the style of Saint um, Saint uh, Thomas Aquinas again. He has many writings which, are, which will be found difficult and maybe obscure because it, they, relay, they, they depend very much on a good understanding of Aristotle. But many of his writings have none of that. They're really frequently asked questions that he goes through and he answers in that style. And it's worth having this book if you don't have it. It's a good read, very short, and will show you... Um, will we'll help you understand our faith a little bit better. Oh, the title is The Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas. The Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas. And again, it is not a book that you sit and read end to end. You just leave it by your bedside and you can read two pages and it will show you, you will, you will gain so much understanding of our faith just by reading this little book. And the last thing I want to mention before I, key, I, I go on, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you have not heard of this book, then so be it. But if you did, I'd like to say a couple of words about it because it, it's gained uh, quite a bit of notor- not- notoriety. And the book is called The Shack. Anyone has heard of this book? Please raise your hand if you've heard of this book. Okay. So, um, for those of you who have not heard of this book, this is a self-published book which has, uh, which has been steadily gaining quite a bit of notoriety and uh, what I wanted to point out to you about this uh, book is, are a couple of things. There are some very uh, good and insightful um, thoughts in this book about God, about the love that God shows man. Particularly, this might be useful to men who don't necessarily talk in this sort of um, you know, love relationship, relationship thing. Right? They'd rather stand there like a rock and not be touched by emotions. That book does a good job at dealing with these issues. Uh, it, is, it is a perfect example of what I'm trying to explain to you when it comes to the importance of the magisterium. Because if you read this book, you will discover that you now left. it's up to you to decide whether the author is right or wrong, because he makes the Trinity speak. It's a meaning of one man with a Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he makes them say a whole bunch of things. How do you know if it's true or false? You, you can't. You can't tell unless you're grounded in some sort of reference. So this book is really crying for the Trinity. I mean, for the for the magisterium. It's really crying for a reference that can tell us, yeah, that's true. No, that no, God can't say that, right? So it, it's it's very interesting in that point. I also wanted to caution you that even though the author himself may not be thinking this way, this book will lead people to the New Age movement. So be very cautious from that standpoint. Even though he's not pushing the New Age, I don't know if he is or is not, but it didn't seem to me that he's really pushing them to, new, to the New Age. But because he doesn't have the sacraments, because he, essentially he's basically telling them something true. If you want to be saved, you need to open your heart to Jesus. Well, yeah, that we, absolutely true. And he does a beautiful job of saying that. You have to allow Jesus in your heart if you want to be saved. The problem, though, he seems to indicate or imply, the only thing you need to do is just open up, up, open up your heart and you'll be saved. You just have to open up your heart and it'll work. And there lies the problem, because even that is impossible to man. You can't just open up your heart like that. We need a lot of work to open up our heart. And that's where the sacraments are so essential. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you do not eat the, the, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. You have no life in you. Whereas he seems to indicate you don't, need, you, don't need, you don't need baptism. You don't need confession. You don't need communion. All you have to do is just... It's in your power to open up your heart. That's the new age piece. It's very subtle, but it's there, and it's going to be problematic. Just wanted to mention it to you. yes. It's called uh, the name of who, the author? I don't know. Sorry. I don't remember the, the name of the author. His background, obviously, is evangelical of some type. But if you, if you haven't read the book, don't read it. Okay? I mean, there are so many good Catholic books to read that it's not worth your time. You know, there's not, it's not worth your time. It's not worth your time. Don't spend your time on this. Just don't worry about it. But if you have read it, or you've, if you've come across it, or some people will come to you and say, hey, why don't you read this book? It's a great book. I just wanted to caution you. Right? It's a tricky book to read. It's not an obvious one. It's, 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 it's hard to wade yourself through. However, it could be a very good study in the necessity of the magisterium, in the necessity of knowing what the truth is. If you had a bunch of kids, teenagers, who know their faith, that would be a good book to give to them. Hey, read this and let's talk. That would be good. But to read it and just sort of accept everything he says, no. That's a dangerous part. So, just wanted to mention that. Okay. All right. Okay. So, the question is, in the Creed we say, uh, he descended into hell on the third day he rose again. Right? Why did Jesus go to hell and what did he do there? There is an easy answer. It is not complete. The easy answer is that if you recall in the old understanding of hell there were two parts to it there were gehenna and there were hades gehenna is effectively the abode of the damned those who are damned and then hades was essentially the abode of those who were just but could not go to heaven right so he descended into hell to bring all those who were there to to lead them to heaven right and the other part of the answer is that he descended into Gehenna to assert his authority as a king. Because, remember St. Paul? For every knee beneath the earth, on the earth and above the earth, shall bow down before Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of Lords of the entire universe, including, including hell. All right? That's why. That's the easy answer. Now, there, is, uh, there are some issues, particularly related to the letter of St. Uh, Peter. I'm not going to go through those right now. All right? Any other question before we... All right. So then, uh, please open your Bible to chapter 33. So let's recall what happened so far. In the, prior cha- in the previous chapter, we spent quite a bit of time on it. Uh, Jacob had contended with an angel, or actually with God, during the night. In preparation for the meeting of Esau. And now the meeting is going to happen. And Jacob lifted up his eyes, verse 1, and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau raised his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. With such favor have you received me. Accept, I pray you, my gift that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flock's And herds, giving suck, are a care to me. And if they are overridden, for one day all the flocks will die. Let my lord pass on before his servant, and I will lead on slowly, according to the pace of the cattle which are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the men who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house, and made booths for his cattle, therefore the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar, and called it El Elohi Israel. Fairly short chapter, and we see now the final act of this drama that had started with him leaving Lebanon unfold. So there are obviously two parts. Verses 1 and 2 cover the actual reconciliation of the the brothers. I mean verses 1 through verses 11. And verses 12 through 17 depict the process of disengagement when they break away. And 18 through 20 constitute a sort of epilogue that also forges a connection with the next chapter. So, he comes forth, he meets him, the meeting goes really, really well, but then he makes sure to disengage from his brother as quickly as possible, and while his brother goes to Seir, which is sort of southeast, he goes to Sukkoth, which is northwest. He's, he stays, he, he keeps the, his distances from his brother. Let's go through this uh, verse by verse, and then we'll, hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to comment on the entire chapter. Obviously, the 400 men, as we said last time, are a reminder of possible aggressive intention. It is essentially a division, a military division. Abraham, when he pursued the, the kings, took with him divisions as well. And don't remember exactly the number, but 400 men was a known number for a division. So it is either because Esau came and wanted to have protection for all of them, or wanted because he, he wanted to essentially use it to attack his brother. We won't really never know um the important part here is that what um, um, what Jacob had done is that he divided his uh, his personnel into into groups we we know that from the previous chapter as a, a measure of protection so in case uh, Esau attacks him, at least part of him his group will survive but then uh, and he moved he moved in front of everybody, leaving Rachel and Joseph all the way to the back, you can see the preferences. First, the the the, the servants and their children, then Leah and her children, and finally Rachel and Joseph, all the way to the back. And he walks ahead of all of them. And he bowed low seven times. Which is, <clears throat> one thing that is really important here is that the Hebrew verb denotes the full length proneness of the body as a symbol of submission to a superior authority. And, um, That brings to mind our own uh, behavior during the liturgy, during Mass. So, as you know, in the the Latin rite, um, we kneel. But in Eastern rites, we bow. And there are today uh, problems of behavior on both sides of the aisle. So the Latin rite, when most people come into the church, they kneel as if they have a spring on their knee. As soon as the knee hits that ground, they're back up. Right? And in the Eastern Rite, there is hardly any bowing going on. There's just a small flick of the head. Right? As if we have a real physical problem with our behavior. We just don't bow. We don't even understand what that means. So let's refresh our memory. In the Latin Rite, the reason why there is kneeling goes back to the Western Roman Empire, in which the habit was that for a soldier to show submission to the emperor, he would kneel before the emperor, presenting the hilt of his sword to the emperor, saying to him, my life is in your hands. Nothing has changed. Kneeling at Mass means the same thing. It is a submission to Jesus Christ. In the eastern right, we go back to the eastern um, Roman Empire where the king would enter his court and there were no chairs. There was only the throne and everybody would stand. And as soon as the king would sit, everybody would kneel. And kneeling meant that if I were looking at you and you're kneeling, I see the back of your head. That's I'm sorry, bowing. My bad bowing. Everybody would bow. I see the back of your head. That is a gesture of bowing. And it is exactly what's going on here with with, uh, with Jacob. Let me read it to you again. The Hebrew verb denotes the full-length proneness of the body as a symbol of submission to a superior authority. The practice is illustrated by the royal correspondence from Tel El Amarna, in which the conventional formula of the vassal writing to Pharaoh is, seven times and seven times, I fall at the feet of the king, my lord. That is, in both prone and supine position. That's what you're still supposed to do when you enter the church. And when there is an elevation in the eastern right, you're supposed to bow. The king is risen. Bow. And one more thing, for those of you of the Latin Rite that do come to Eastern liturgies, please do not kneel. Bow. In Eastern liturgies there are no kneeling. And don't get me going on my one of my favourite pet peeves. We don't fabricate liturgy. Liturgy is not an expression of how wonderful it is we feel about doing this gesture or that gesture. The liturgy is given to us, just as God gave the garden to Adam and Eve and told them, you will not eat from that tree. He's saying the same thing, you're not going to make liturgy because your liturgy typically ends up in in a big puddle of boo-boo. Don't do that. I'm giving you the liturgy. It's a tree of life. Live by it. All right? So don't mess with the liturgy. Jesus is not impressed. So in the Eastern Rite, you bow. In the Latin Rite, you kneel. So if you're an Eastern Rite guy, you go to the Latin Rite, you don't bow. You kneel. I don't care how you feel about it. Liturgy is not your personal subjective experience. It is the objective experience of the body of Christ acting as one. Right, In the Latin Rite, please don't hold hands. Don't raise your hands. Don't open them up when you say, oh, Our Father, don't do any of that stuff. In the Latin Rite, you're supposed to clasp your hand, one, one thumb over the other, to indicate the two natures of Jesus Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. You just do that. Liturgy is given. We are privileged to take part in it. It doesn't belong to us. We don't mess around with it. And then make sure that your bodily gesture truly expresses devotion, not some sort of, oh, I gotta do this. Okay? And one more thing I want to say about this. If you are in the liturgy, you're supposed to participate. Yeah? So that means you sing. I don't care how your voice sounds. Again, it's not about your subjective aspiration towards the perfection of the liturgy that counts here. We're called to sing, we sing. Yeah? We're called to say the creed, we say the creed. And when you say the creed, don't mumble. (laughs) Sounds like, you know, just... (laughs) Say the creed. When there are answers, you answer and please don't leave before the last hymn. It's very, very important. That's a hymn of celebration. You wait for the procession to go out. Right? Like you're invited to a wedding, and right before the bride and groom are about to leave, you take off before them. Oh, such a friend you are. Don't do that. Liturgy, study, understand. Participate, live it. And the last thing I'll tell you, do not speak in church unless it is really important. Every word you say that is not necessary is a venial sin. No time to say hello, hi, how are you, none of that outside. This is a holy place. It's made for holy words only, not for anything else. It's gone so bad these days that people walk in here back and forth, talking in a the their tongue. And hey, how are you? Or can we do this? The thing—it's a theater. Can't do that. Understand where you are. Live accordingly. The Vatican has the right to change the liturgy, so every patriarchate essentially has that right. It's given by God. Now, what they changed were certain things in the liturgy. They turned it from, say, Latin to English. They modified it in certain ways, and they—they they definitely the church has that authority to do so. However, I do recommend—I I do recommend you get the rubric of the mass, because the rubric tells you exactly what you have to do. And there are beyond those some changes which are, which are not in the rubric, and those are made spontaneously. And those are the ones we should not be following. Like, for instance, the whole—you the, know—opening. It's really confusing because, in, for instance, the Maronite liturgy. We are told to open our arms when we say to our Father. We have to do that. In the Latin liturgy, you don't do that. You clasp your arms. And since my family goes to both, my kids at one point are really confused. What do you do? No. Why? We do it here. No, but, yeah, but that's not here. Here we do this. Over there we do this. Oh, okay, after a while they got it. Right? We do what the rubric tells us to do. Because otherwise what we're doing, we're breaking the body of Christ. It is not union. How could it be communion? We are to act as one. We represent in our body, in our behavior, the unity of the people of God. And when we, not, we, we don't do that, there is dissonance. Right? The harmony is broken. And that's the problem. We become more and more centered on us, how we want the liturgy to be. And away from the body, from Christ, who is the head, and who tells us how it should be. Make sense? Yes? I, I think they go to the, the, the proper posture is hands folded. Is that the rumor you talked about in the I, I believe so. Yeah. You have to have hands folded when you're standing in, in prayer. That is the proper devotional attitude. And that's why, for instance, in, um, in the um, Eastern rites, for they told you specifically open your arms when you sit You have to. And by the way, when you open your arms in the Eastern rites, please, not up. I see a lot of people do that. This is a priestly attitude. Don't do that. You're, you're, you're confusing yourself with the priest. Do it the way a mendicant would do it. Because you're begging. If you're a beggar, would you raise up your arm like this? You wouldn't. See, so much is denoted of our interior disposition towards the Lord when we do that sort of stuff. No, 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 no. Down, open, like you're begging. Please give me something I need. That's the proper attitude. I, I, there'll be so much to say. Um, And liturgy has become, for me, a real source of pain. But it is as it is. So let's keep on going. So again, bowing, you bow down. This is what he did in front of him. It's a very common posture of the uh, ancient uh, Middle East to bow in this way. Now, Esau, verse 4, apparently is genuinely moved by Jacob's extravagant gesture. And then they actually meet. And he kissed him, and they wept. It was all true, all authentic. There is no pretense on the part of Esau. He has no... um, He's not hiding some other intentions. It is what it is. Now, here's the key. You can't look at it separate from what happened in the previous chapter. And all that night that, that that Jacob spent contending with God. The fact that there was such a happy meeting is not to be separated from the night of prayer that Jacob has spent with God. It is the fruit of that prayer that we see here. It is the prayer that was able to take away any sign of hostility, any sign of um, danger, and make it be a happy reunion. Now, however, Esau did not convert. Esau did not say, my brother... You were right all along. That, that birthright was yours. And now I gladly give it to you, and I really want to um, uh, make my peace with God and come to know Him the way you do. That's not what he said. Esau's internal disposition has not, has not changed. What had happened here was to the service of Jacob. To the service of Jacob. And the kiss was sincere. And it signals the final resolution of the chain of tragic events that had happened before. That enmity, so to speak, came to an end. And yet, and yet, the brothers were not reconciled. Because one went one way and Jacob won the other. And as time will unfolds, the Edomite, the one who comes from Esau, will become the bitter enemies of Israel. And, Keep in mind that Herod was an Edomite. He harkens all the way back up to Esau. So, in our lives as well, we should remember that even if sometimes we meet people and we have a good time with them, and emotionally we are engaged and satisfied, it does not mean we are of the same family. And as I've pointed out to my, to my uh, children I keep on reminding them, when you have friends who are non-Catholic, be mindful of your friendship. It can go as far as you would like it to go. That's a good thing to have friends. I'm not saying you don't stop, stop talking to them. None of that. This is good. But just be wise and recognize there is an intrinsic limit to your friendship. And it is not, it is not unrealistic to assume that one day, if they say a Catholic and a Protestant, that the Catholic ends up in heaven and the Protestant in hell. That friendship will end. See, so much of our behavior tends to be this disassoci- from our faith, and yet so much of our behavior must inform our faith. So, what I'm talking, what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about is that if you really have, and I'll show you here the, the, the deep-seated hypocrisy of all of us, right? and I'm, I'm ahead of all of you. If I say that I really have a friend who is a Protestant, and I'm not fasting and I'm not sacrificing for this friend, he's no friend of mine. He's not my friend. If I'm not fasting and sacrificing for his conversion, he's not my friend. I don't truly really love him. I enjoy his companionship. Maybe we share something together. We like sitting and watching. You know, we're part of these uh, very strange ritual that male uh, on this planet like to get into, sitting in front of a rectangular thing and b- watching a bunch of other males running around with one ball to share among all of them, called football. Maybe we enjoy that and having a good beer and we have a good time. But he's really not my friend, is he? I'm happy if he's a Protestant. This is his problem. It's okay. It's okay with me. Live and let live sort of thing. Right? That's hypocrisy. He's not my friend. Ah, I'm not even going there. I'm not even going to brothers and husbands. I'm just staying with friends because it is the one relationship that seems so neutral, so accepted. He's my friend. Really? Really? Think about that. Think about your relationship. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that you're going to be doing this in all occasions, in all cases. You may not be able to sacrifice and fight for everybody. But be aware of the extent of your relationship and treat people accordingly. Be honest. Yeah? Yes. It, it is okay as a step, absolutely. So praying for the Protestant to be the best Protestant can be, may be the step he needs to go through before he becomes a Catholic. right? Your intention is that if you really say, this person is my friend, if you make that commitment to friendship, understand what you're saying before the Lord. And you're going to be called into account. What did you mean when you said this person was your friend? You claimed that person as your friend. What does that mean? And what did you do for her? That's the key. We have to be aware of those things, right? Now, in the case of in the case of Jacob and Esau, you notice Jacob said nothing, right? Why? You can see here the lack of the grace of the new covenant. I hope you see it in the text. There is no saving grace in this text. The grace of Christ is not here to mend this relation. Jacob does not have what it takes to turn the heart of his brother. He, has, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit in his life. He doesn't have the sacraments. He doesn't have confession. He doesn't have sacrifices that he can join to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He lives in a world that is more separate from ours than if we were to discover another universe. His word are so much further apart from ours than if we were to discover some alien race of giants with 12 heads and 22 eyes on a, on a parallel universe. Here, there is no fruit. That's my point. All that had happened was for the benefit of Jacob. So he may not be in danger of Esau because God promised him, by my covenant, I'll protect you. You will go back and this is going to happen. His covenant is happening. And his covenant will use the enemies of his people to advantage his people provided they follow in his footsteps. And that's still true today. Right? Right? But there is no conversion. Esau is still the same. Whereas we can avail ourselves of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're so much more powerful than Jacob ever was. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jacob kept on referring to himself as your servant... And obviously, it is for pacification. And the wives are presented in ascending order of social status and affection. And then uh, Jacob made the gift to Esau, and Esau said, "What is this that you sent to me?" He said, "Well, this is uh, this is uh, for me to find favor with you." And being a good Middle Eastern, what what happens if I come to you and I offer you a gift? What do you do? What's the first thing come out of your mouth? Oh no, no, thank you, it's too much. This is exactly what's going on here. No different. Right They have to go through this sort of a uh, thing that I've never understood I've, I don't I don't understand this, but anyhow, uh, you say, "Please take it and no I can't take it, I insist, and et cetera, etc, cetera, and eventually you take it all along. you knew you were going to take it, but you have to go through this. <laughs> I'm always reminded of my father-in-law who was little, he was in France in the south, south of France. So, the whole Mediter- Mediterranean ba- basin share that sort of behavior. And he was told when you go somewhere and somebody offers you chocolate, you have to say no three times before you can accept. That's the, you, you, I'm sure you're, you, you can relate. And he went there, he's a very smart kid. He's always been a very smart kid. He goes there and I, uh, he's offered chocolate and he goes, No, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they told him you have to say no three times and then you can say yes. We just did what, they, what we told. Right? Let's cut to the chase here. Right? So that's what happened here, and effectively, he accepts his gift. And then he tells him, seeing is like seeing the face of God. So on on the surface, it's obviously a way for Jacob to pacify Esau. Deeper down in our own in, in, within the new covenant, it takes on a very different meaning. Seeing you is like seeing the face of God. What a su- surprising thing to say! Now, I had I have mentioned to you TED, TED.com, which is this website where there are many um, technically uh, able people who present studies they're doing and research they're doing. And there was one study on. On biology presented it was a half an hour long, presented by a professor from Stanford. He, it's a talk he gave at Stanford on what makes us human different from animals. And the interesting thing about the study is that towards the end, towards the end, he presents the case of a, of a nun who works with inmates on death row. That's her um, call in life. That's her apostolate to work with inmates who are on death row. And he talked to her and asked her, why, did, why do you do this? Or maybe right in an interview, I don't remember exactly. And she said, because these, these guys she's dealing with are the guys of the worst kind. The guys with whom you don't want to deal and the guys in whom you look and there is absolutely not even a faintest trace of love left. What do you do? Why are you treating, dealing with these guys? And her answer was something to this effect it is precisely in those situations where love is lacking that love must abound. And he said, and if you watch this video, you will see that uh, he said, and as a, and he, I'm quoting him, and as a strident atheist, so he's an atheist. Um, I find that when something seems to be impossible to do and we turn it into a moral imperative, that makes us really different. When you find something that is so impossible to do and yet you make it as a moral imperative, that's magnificent. He was touched by this nun and by what she did. And God does come to us in very surprising and sometimes frustrating ways. Seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Remember that the next time around you're dealing with maybe your mother-in-law. Or with a sister. Or with a friend who bothers you. Or with a neighbor. Or with somebody who just seems to find wonderful ways of annoying you. Say this to yourself. Seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Jacob said it because he wanted to pacify his brother. It's an expression that he uses to essentially give him uh, glory. It's a a colloquialism to uh, share a certain... um, He's basically saying going to you is like going to a pilgrimage. And that's why I'm giving you all these gifts. Um, He's saying that uh, being admitted in your august presence is such a privilege... Um, so, th- th- these are the sort of things he's saying. But for us, uh, following St. Francis, who looked into a leper and saw the face of Jesus, right? th- there is more to this to these words of Scripture that were said a long time ago that apply to us than it would ever apply in the Old Covenant. I suppose that's what I'm trying to tell you. The interesting thing also is that when he tells him in verse 11, accept my present, he changes the terminology. The word used by Jacob is not minha, which is a Hebrew word to indicate a gift, something I give you, minha. Instead, he uses the word barakah, which really means a blessing. And think about it, Jacob is telling (laughs) Esau, accept my blessing. And when Isa uh, replies back, he says, "I essentially he accepts his minha, his present, not blessing." Here, English covers the undertone, what's going on between the two of them, and that's why, as I told you earlier, there is no conversion on his part. He's seen material good. He's touched by what's given to him. He recognizes it. It's a royal gift that he's given. He accepts it, and he just and they just go their way. And these, for instance, it is possible that when Jesus said, use money to make friends, he may have been thinking about situations such as these. But again, colored with the gifts of the new covenant. So that through money you might be able to reach people. And bring them, bring them to Christ. And then they disengage. Now they're done. There is now one more conversation that has to happen. Esau acts as a, as a, a proper host. He is going to insist that he must accompany Jacob. Why don't you just let me accompany you? Well, you're not going to wait. It's going to be too slow. This and that and the other. Just go ahead. Okay, fine. I'll leave you some of my men to protect you. You No, what for? Well, fine. Thank you. That's very generous of you. But I think we'll be just fine. All right. And he leaves. He didn't really want to do it. He's doing what is appropriate, what is right. And so many of us, this is something we need to think about. So many of us, can go through these motions of being welcoming and being um, having people come to our house, etc., etc. But deep down in our hearts, we would rather be doing something else. Somebody knocks at your door and they want this or that. You just help them, but really, you would rather be somewhere else doing something else. It's like we would. We don't want to be interrupted, especially when we're talking somebody interrupts us three times in a row when we're talking, we just blow up. Even if it is God. We think we have the right to speak. It's our right. We have the right to speak. Even if it's God, we're just going to cut him off. So we can say what we have to say because it's so important. Now coming from a guy who stands before you and speaks for about an hour and a half is really funny. But be it as it may, I'm, I'm hoping I'm making a point here. When somebody comes to you, knocks on your door, To be truly available, internally, inwardly, within your heart, you need to be able to say, Okay, Lord, I'm setting this aside. Whatever I was doing, no matter how important it was, and now I'm going to turn to you. Because I see the face of God in this person you just sent me. And I will be completely present to this person. That is doing the will of God. And so, he went on his pace. And as I told you, instead of um, going to Seir, he um, goes to Sukkoth. So Seir was southward and Jacob turns northward and he recrosses the river, the Jabbok, and he goes over to Sukkoth where he stayed, which is near Penuel. And Jacob obviously wishes to position himself on the east-west road that connected Canaan with the major north-south artery that led from Damascus because he still is a shepherd and he has to have dealings with people coming and going so he can make a living. And Sukkoth, remember he made booths, right, for his for his herds, as scripture told us right now in this chapter, and later on there will be a feast of Sukkoth, the feast of booths, which we call Pentecost. And as I mentioned to you in the series I have on the liturgy of the temple, there quite quite more detail on the importance of this feast, uh, the Feast of Sukkoth. Then he goes, then he purchases, he purchases a land from the city of Shechem, which is today identified with Tel Balata in the central highlands about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. And it is known from many ancient sources, uh, including the Egyptian records of senator Usert the 3rd, 19th century B.C., and El Amarna tablets, 14th century B.C., and nearly continuous occupation in that place has happened over there. So it's a very well-attested place, fairly fertile, and with good grazing ground for his flock. And before him, exactly like Abraham, he purchased the land where he lives as a sign of confirmation of his trust, in the covenant that God had made with him. He's purchasing land to say, I trust what God has said is going to happen. But also as a sign that it's not going to happen by some sort of a magic wand that God is going to just you know, wave in the air and suddenly all the land is his. It's going to happen progressively and slowly throughout a long period of time. The interesting thing is that the, the amount is given as 100 kesitabs. 100 kesitabs. That's the actual word used. And the problem with this is that we have no clue what that means. It's a unit of measure that we've not come across anywhere else but in this chapter. Curiosity. Just letting you know. Somebody stated that um, it is potentially possible to, kesita means really a lamb. And the extensive use of cattle as a medium of commercial exchange in ancient times survives in the word Pecuniary. If you heard that word, pecuniary, well, that really means, that comes from Latin, uh, pecus. And pecus means cattle. Right? So it is possible that it wasn't a, um, a monetary exchange, rather it's an exchange of cattle. He gave them cattle, herds, and he got the land. And then what does he do? The first thing he does when he got that thing, he sets up an altar. He sets an altar, and interestingly enough, he sets up the altar, but does not offer sacrifice. So in this case, he does not offer sacrifice, and there is no um, theophany on this altar. All there is, is an altar that he builds, and he calls it El Eloho Israel, which means the God of Israel. El Eloh, Israel. And he gives that name to the altar. That's what he calls the altar. He doesn't call the altar the presence of God. He calls the altar the God of Israel. And here again you see how in all the Jewish commentaries that you might read on scripture, there is no explanation given to why he would call an altar the God of Israel. It is only in the Christian realization of it that it makes sense. Right? Because it is, the altar becomes for us a symbol of Christ. Right? Now, altar, as I said, function as, an, as a sacrificial platform, but their construction can also mark the introduction of worship of a particular God in a new land. And one tie between the generations of covenantal leaders in their construction of altars in order to worship Yahweh in the promised land. And the fact that he called it El Elo Israel, remember when he calls it El Elo Israel, he's not saying this is is the God of the country Israel or the nation Israel. He's saying this is the God of me. Because back then when he uses that word Israel, It only means Jacob. That's all it means. It's a very personal relationship that he has with God. And he accepts the name that he was given. The new name, Israel. So when we enter a home, when we build a house, what should be the very first thing that we should build in that house? A small space where we can be in the presence of God. Not only that, but it should be very clear that if I were to go to your house, as soon as I step in your house, I should be able to know I am in a Catholic house. That means by the door, somewhere close, there is a small fountain with holy water. That means when I look at your walls, I'm going to see familiar paintings, maybe... maybe the, um, the, the, the Divine Mercy portrait. Maybe it's an icon. Maybe um, Our Lady holding Jesus. Something. A statue. Okay? And I hope I won't see right, the King TV enthroned in your living room. Think about what you're doing. Think about the statement that your house will make when people visit. What are you telling them? What is important to you? You can talk all you want. Your house speaks louder than you do. Because it really says everything about your real intentions. This is Lent. This is a period of examination. This is the time that the church gives us, which is filled with graces for us to purify our hearts, to grow in the love of Jesus, to shed away those things that keep us away from Him, and grab onto those things that help us to grow in it. And I'm hoping... And I'm praying that all of you have picked a difficult path in Lent. I hope that you are actually doing something that is a little bit painful. If all you did was give up chocolate, that's not enough. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's not enough. I hope you do something that actually pinches. Because it is in emptying yourself from those things that you're making a space for Jesus to come into your heart. And remember, this season is very different than fasting in other times. This is a season given to us by the church. Therefore, it is full of graces. And those things that you think you could not do in normal time, like maybe fasting in the morning and not eating anything till noon, from, say, uh, uh, midnight to noon without food and without water, you will be able to do in this season because the graces that flow from the church will carry you. Now, if you have medical issues, please take care of those. I'm talking to people who don't have medical issues. Do something that scares you. Otherwise, how do you show Jesus that you love Him? So, at the end of the day, you can see that he had a very difficult journey. He went all the way up from his parents, running away from his brother, spent 20 years over there, came back, having to run away from the who, who who received him, and being afraid of his brother. And God took him with him in exile and brought him back. That's our journey. Live and trust in God. He will take you to places you never thought He would, and He will bring you back. Because He loves you. God bless you. So we'll uh, end with a word of prayer and after that we'll have some time for questions. Alright, questions? Yes? That's a good question. Why didn't Jacob offer any sacrifice at that altar? What was the purpose of the altar? Don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Other than uh, erecting an altar as a way to maybe remember why he's here and what God had always wanted to do for him. But There is no immediate answer. And we'll see if in the next chapter uh, there is clarity, but I don't think there is. Just an altar that he erected to indicate that this is the house of the God of Israel. I think that's the extent that I could the way I can answer this question. Yes. Yes, offering sacrifice was indeed part of their life. Abraham offered sacrifice so uh, that Isaac building an altar and offering sacrifice is known. But the thing is that building an altar... Without a sacrifice is the strange part. And as I said, the only reason is because he wanted to indicate by this altar that this was the house of God. And this is the first time we see an altar being built that seems to have a purpose beyond the immediate offering of a sacrifice. Yes. Foreshadowing the constant presence of God. Yes. I mean, I think that's a, that's a reasonable um, interpretation. But there is, no, there is no clear answer. Yes. 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 That Jacob believed that the covenant will save him? I think that uh, it's a very good question. And I think that the fact that he was afraid of Laban. And the fact that he was afraid of Esau. Indicates that even though he may have known. In his mind. That God promised. right, That to come and live it in real action. Uh, will require more than just. A, an assent to the truth. So. Perhaps this is why God had to contend with him all night long. To get him to convince him in his body, in his flesh, that he will save him. Ah, by, by offering gifts to Esau, isn't he showing that he's fearing Esau? In that case, where is his faith in God? It, it may be said that the action that he displays is not perfect. But it may also be said that it is precisely through this action that God saves him. Because he makes Esau readily willing to accept the gift instead of just packing everybody and taking them into bondage. So work, the them. I think it's both. And God, and if, if there is anything about Genesis that is really beautiful, what, what is shining clearly is how God loves us through our imperfections. If God were to wait for us to be perfect, for Him to start loving us, hell would freeze over. God loves us Through our imperfections. And if if there's anything that shines forth so beautifully in Genesis, it is precisely God's love. Yeah, You see, exactly. The covenant is regardless of our imperfections. Because the covenant... Remember, in the covenant there is a strong part and there is a weak part. The covenant rests on the authority of the strong party. Not the weak party. As long as we strive to live according to the covenant, God will take care of the rest. So God knows we are imperfect. God knows on our own we can't do diddly squat, much less go to heaven. God knows that we are more more often than not in trouble. God knows the disorder of our hearts. God knows the weaknesses, the temptations, the difficulties, the doubts. He knows all of this. But through all of this, He will save us if we are faithful to Him. That's all. We have to be faithful. A lot of our faith depends on our ability to wait for God. Just wait. That means, in the process of waiting, you discover more and more of your imperfections and you become Utterly insufferable to yourself. You just can't look at yourself. You can't stand yourself. And then you fall into this other imperfection of wanting Jesus to come and deliver you from yourself simply because it stinks, not because you love Him. And so He will make you wait longer until you can love Him, even though you know deep down you stink. I'm not talking about you particularly. I'm just talking in general. In the, in the spiritual life, what he's wanting us to discover is the depth of his love. But we have conditional love with him most of the time. And it starts with, give me the Cadillac, then I know you love me. Then we make a little bit of progress. right? We abandon the material goods and we then long for the spiritual goods. Patience, the virtues. We realize we're not patient. We'd like to be patient. Anger. We can't tend to be angry. So we'd rather not to be angry. Then holiness. Faith. Love. Charity. All the beautiful virtues. We then long after those. Guess what? We treat them as a Cadillac. It's still conditional love. Give me those things and I know you'll love me. And he still waits until we get to this point in our life when we say, you know what? Don't give me anything. Just love me. I don't care anymore. I just want to be with you. And then the relationship starts. And some of us will only say these words when we are three days away from dying. And it takes a cancer or two to make us say them. But He continues to love us. And the beauty of Genesis Is you see, His constant care, His presence, always there, providence, always there, always caring, always silent, always humble, always pure, always holy, there for His people, despite their imperfections. You understand? That's the beauty about God's presence. And that's why we study Genesis. It is the book in Scripture where we open it and we see ourselves. We're not studying Genesis for the purpose of becoming theologians. We're studying Genesis because it's a mirror where we open it and we see our face. And hopefully one day we'll open it and our face is gone. And instead of our face, we see Jesus. Yeah? Yes. Well, that's a good question. The question is, if during the day we get into the habit of telling the Lord how much we depend on Him, how much we need Him, how much we need His help to get us through, isn't that, first of all, is that a good thing? It's a wonderful thing. Should we be doing that? Absolutely. Should we do it all the time? Absolutely. And all the saints speak to this. We should be doing this. Don't do this by yourself. Make sure, recognize Jesus' presence in your life. I think it's a wonderful habit to acquire. It's a habit of piety, to recognize that we need God in everything we do. He said it, without me, you can do nothing. We're saying, okay, you told us, without without you, we can do nothing. I'm telling you, I can do it right now. But I have to do it, so please help me. Wonderful. That which I was talking about, though, is of a little bit of a different nature. And the thing is that active prayer in and of itself, can act one of two different ways in different people. People who are really active, having incorporated this prayer in them, will continue to have a very active life. Therefore, they are the ones in control. They're the ones who are saying, Okay, I need you now, please help me do this. You're still in control. You haven't let go. And they may not be ready to let go, which is what this contemplation prayer requires of them. It's a completely different kind of prayer. You're not sitting there to do something. You're sitting there to let somebody, something be done to you. Let it be done to me according to thy word. Let me put it you this way. Take a guy who's been a doctor and who's been performing surgeries on people for 30 years. Does that necessarily prepare him for his own surgery? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. You can't count on it, right? It could push him away or it could put him, bring him closer. Therefore, I don't necessarily think it could be a general rule that you can follow that if somebody has been calling on the Lord in an active way throughout all the day, that this person will be better ready to sit down and do the contemplative prayer. Yes. True. All I'm trying to say to you is that it, it could indeed open up someone's up to this prayer. It, it is possible, Right. It is possible. But I'm saying is that you don't need any of this. All you need to do is sit through the hour. That's all you need to do. And let him take over. And giving him an hour is like being on the cross. Because okay? it's a crucifixion sitting on an hour where you're doing nothing or close to nothing. It's really hard. That's all. So if you are intent, if you try to do this, you'll see for yourself the limitation of your own, of your own character. Having said that, as I told you, women, especially those who are at home and who mothered, who are mothers, you definitely have a head start on all of us. Because you know what it means to be receptive. You received life in you. This is similar on a spiritual level. You're there to receive life. Us men and women who are in the workforce have a much harder time. Because we're always in control, we're always doing things, we have action items and to do's and PowerPoints and presentations and, and things to do. Right? None of that fit into God's plan for prayer. So, yeah. Any other question? God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.